Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is up, y'all? I totally almost said good afternoon and realized that you might not be listening to this in the afternoon. But if you are, good afternoon. It's afternoon for me when I'm recording this. What is up, guys? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. We are continuing our journey today through Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker's book, Politicizing the Bible, going through these key enlightenment figures and how they, uh, through their influence, through their philosophy, through their hermeneutics, through their you know political agendas, whatever it may be, how the, each of these figures changed the way that we read the Bible, changed the way the modern world was set up, uh, changed, I mean, honestly, the history of the West. So this is a really, really big deal, people here. Um, and it's one of those things where, as, as you've been listening to the podcast, you know, it's one of those things where you, you might see like, man, I wish I had more information. Well, like I do a lot of the times, whenever we're journeying through a text or a book, I'm always going to point you back to the book itself, right? So if as we're going through this, you really wish you just knew more on Luther or Occam or, you know, Machiavelli or whatever, whoever it might be, then buy the book. It's it's really good. Um, and, uh, and it's way more detailed than I can be here on this, you know, 20-ish, 30-minute podcast. We, we always fall somewhere in there. Uh, for those who might be tuning in for the first time, Catholics with Bibles, we usually start with a Greek or Hebrew word of the day because we usually are zooming in on a particular book or a text of Scripture. Uh, today, we um, in this series, we're not looking at particular books of the Bible, but rather we're looking at um, kind of how Bible, the Bible, biblical interpretation, cats where it is today. And we haven't been doing a lot of uh, Greek or Hebrew words of the day, but we're going to do a Greek word of the day here. Dikaiosune is going to be the Greek word of the day. And it means justified because today, last week, we started our uh, conversation on Luther and today we're going to be wrapping it up. There's still a ton more that uh, can be said and has been said and probably will be said on Luther. Um, but uh, it's it's one of those things where he, he is really important, especially, I think, for a lot of Catholics, because we really need to understand where what his definitions of the, some of these key terms we're going to talk about today are. Um, and we're going to look at some texts that where he you know, got some of the ideas he, he, he got to. Um, last week, we kind of set up his history, his philosophical foundation to kind of get him to the place where now he can, we can read some of the texts that he would read, um, that he would that he read, and got to conclusions he got to. So one of the things that hopefully you've seen by now is that a lot of the times when it comes to Catholic-Protestant conversations, a lot of times it, it's, it's not that we're using a totally different Bible than them, even though obviously some books are, are different, but most of the the debatable texts are shared texts, right? You're talking about Romans, you know, certain texts of First Corinthians, First Second Thessalonians, Ephesians, even, right? We we share those texts in common. Uh, but Ratzinger say it's like swordplay in the mist, right? Because we're both holding the, the the sword of the spirit, the word of God in our hands, but we don't realize that uh, we're in totally different uh, fields because the mist is too thick. Because we don't realize that what we mean by these words are totally different, right? So it's like swordplay in the mist. So that's why if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who's not Catholic about a certain uh, belief of the Catholic Church or a certain uh, biblical passage, and you feel like you're just going nowhere and you're hitting your head against the wall, but it's, it's because 
their philosophical base, whether they know it or not, and whether you know it or not, is totally different than ours, right? Um, the, this nominalistic tendency of all Protestant thought, um, and you know, you have this throwing the baby out of the bathwater in a lot of cases. And so because, and we don't have a nominalistic tendency with, as in, within the Catholic Church, hopefully you don't, um, we, we, have, we have the belief that things have natures, right? There is, we have a shared human nature. There's a divine nature, right? There's angelic natures. And things act according to their nature. As a thing is, so it does, right? Why does a dog bark? Because it's a dog. Why do men think? Because we are men, right? Um, and so for, uh, for all, basically all Protestants, um, they don't have the same foundational uh, formation uh, in philosophy. Luther hated philosophy. We talked about that last week, right? And so today we're going to be we're going to be diving into uh, kind of once again these Luther in particular his his understanding of some key passages and some key ideas. And so for Luther, we we have this dichotomy that he presents. So for Luther. We briefly talked about this this last week, but for Luther, everything, everything has to be read through the lens of we men are justified by faith alone. Sola fide, sola scriptura, right? Um, and, and a really lazy argument that some Catholics make is like, well, sola fide and sola scriptura, those aren't, that's not even in the Bible. So like, why do Protestants believe that if it's sola scriptura? Okay, obviously non-Catholics that believe, that hold sola fide and sola scriptura, uh, scriptura are smarter than that. They realize that that exact word is not in the Bible. So um, don't use that argument. It's just a dumb one. And it's, it, <laughs> they know that, right? Um, it's, it's, but the thing is, it's, it's not, they're not coming from a place of, of proof texting, right? They're going to want to proof text you to death and you can try to proof text them to death, but it's just not going to work because our philosophical dispensations or not dispensations, our philosophical uh, foundations are, are totally different, right? And so for, for Luther, this dichotomy he sets up is between the law and the gospel. So last week we briefly touched on this idea that um, for Luther, everything is his hermeneutic, one of his hermeneutical lenses, the way he reads scripture is, is this idea of a, the promise of God, right? Luther views the entire Old Testament, the law, as the promises of God right? Preparing his people to receive Jesus, right? His son. And he views the New Testament as the gospel, right? The euangelion Christos, right? The forgiveness of sins through Christ. And so therefore we have this dichotomy, right? We have the law on one side and that, that, that the law was linked to promises. And then we have the gospel on the other side and the gospel linked to the fulfillment of this promise. And so for Luther, because the law is on one side, gospel on the other, there's no, there's no longer a need for the law because of the gospel, because of the fulfillment of this, uh, the promises of God, right? So we have this, um, this quote from uh, Hannah Weicker here. So we read this. Oh, sorry. This is actually from uh, Luther. So we read this. The whole of scripture is concerned to rouse faith in us now urging us with commandments or retributions, i.e. the law, and again encouraging us with the promises and consolations, i.e. the gospel. In fact, the whole of Scripture consists of either precepts, law, or promises. The precepts make demands with humble and haughty, which the humble and haughty 
sorry, the precepts make demands which humble the haughty, whereas the promises lift up the lowly by forgiving their sins. So it, it's this dialectical hermeneutic, right? Han and, Walker, Han and Weicker say this, the Old Testament serves as a largely negative function as law rather than serving as the priestly sacrificial foundation to be fulfilled in the New Testament. Or to focus on the positive, the Old Testament foundation is limited to promise, right? Like I just said, and the New Testament is limited to the fulfillment of that promise. And so we have this, this idea uh, within, within Catholic uh, realm, when we read the Old Testament, when we read about uh, the, the Levitical priesthood, right? We read about the, these sacrificial systems that the Israelites and the, later the Jews had in place, that God gave them in place, right? We, we understand that, I mean, obviously we don't sacrifice animals anymore. That'd be like, don't do that. No bueno. Um, <laughs> um, but we understand, we, we, we see this as a, a foreshadowing of the, the current priesthood, right? Now at the mass, we have an unbloody sacrifice of Christ, right? Not that Christ is on the cross again. He's never on the cross, but it's, the, it's, not, a, it's not like we're sacrificing him again, right? But rather it, the mass is a drawing back on a participation of the one true sacrifice of Christ on his cross, right? And so as Catholics, we, we see this as a setup, right, of this imperfect priesthood, right, setting up the way for Christ being the one true high priest, so like in Hebrews, right, with the, the, the high priesthood of Christ. But the high priesthood implies that there's priests under him, right? Um, but, for, but for Luther, this, this isn't the case because he sees the Old Testament not as you know, any kind of foreshadowing, not as any, anything like that, but rather as just, it's, it's a bunch of promises that are then fulfilled in the gospel, the Evangelion Christos, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then once the promises are fulfilled, there's no longer a need for the law. So Old Testament promise, New Testament, um, it's, it's, for Luther, it's limited to the fulfillment, it's the fulfillment of the promise, right? The promise has been re, uh, fulfilled. So another key difference, right, that Luther brings to the table when it comes to interpreting scriptures uh, within Catholic thought, we have this idea of, of the two senses of scripture. We have the literal and the spiritual sense, right? And the spiritual sense divided into the allegorical, moral, and analogical senses, right? So it's really full fourfold sense of scripture. And so uh, maybe we can talk about that more. Uh, if you want, you can always Google Aquinas senses of scripture. And I'm sure there's really great articles out there explaining it. But in, in short, in the sense of the scripture, it's ways you can read scripture. So you can read it in the literal sense or in the spiritual sense, right? And, and what does this mean? So when you read the Old Testament, New Testament, but a little bit easier to show in the Old Testament, um, let's take this idea of the battle between David and Goliath. So in the literal sense, it's describing this historical event of a teenage David killing a grown man that's probably real tall, right? Um, big boy Goliath, right? In the literal sense, we read this story and we see this teen slinging a stone, knocking Goliath on the head, killing him. David chopping off his head with his own sword and being like, yo, I won. Um, that's literally what the story is talking about. But then you have the spiritual sense, right? And, and this can be, a, a spiritually, we can, we can view this as, you know, us conquering um, the evil one or us conquering... Uh, our own sins or in evil inclinations, right? So we have this spiritual sense as well. And, and Aquinas will say that there's a multiple literal sense, right? It can literally mean multiple things, 
right? Um, and and St. Paul even, even reads the Old Testament in this way too, when he reads the story of Moses striking the rock and says Christ was the rock, right? And out of him, grace came forth. So we read this, this, this spiritual sense of this literal event of Moses striking the rock. But for Luther, uh, there is not, he kind of removes the spiritual sense and really just says, it focuses on the literal sense. So I'm sure you, you've probably talked about this a little bit last week too, but we have this, uh, this trend among non-Catholic Christians of whatever the Bible says, it's, it's black and white. That is literally, it's literally history. It's literally what happened. Um, the earth is created in seven literal days, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas within Catholic thought, we, we, we can see that, you know, not everything in the Old Testament is a literal history, right? There's poems um, and even, even the story of, you know, Tobit that, you know, they don't have that book, but we can, we, we don't necessarily read that. You don't have to read that as a literal person. Um, once again, like it's one of those things where you, you can read the story of Adam and Eve and the Catholic church says, you know, the, the one thing you have to say is that there's, there was a first man and woman because that's like logically makes sense, but are their names, were their names literally Adam and Eve? I mean, probably not. If, and if you know Hebrew, Adam um, just means man or humanity, right? Um, and uh, so, and you have Ish and Isha, right? Which is um, Ish just means uh, man um, and Isha, right? Uh, means woman. So in the verse, uh, it, you know, we call him Isha or her, her Isha because out of Ish, she was taken, right? So you see the play on words there. Um, and so the Catholic understanding is that you don't have to, not every story is literal. Not every story um, has to be fundamentally taken as literal fact, right? There can be interpretive options to it and that the church is there to guide us, right? And, and kind of set the boundaries of like, no, this is too far. So like, for example, the church will never say that, um, you know, there, there wasn't a first man and first woman because it's just like logically like there, there was. Um, because also uh, there had to be original sin, right? There had to be the first mess up, right? And that affected uh, all of Adam's descendants, AKA us, um, and so, but for Luther, um, he, he, he kind of does away with the spiritual sense, right? Um, uh, he replaces the literal spiritual with law gospel, right? So his law gospel dichotomy kind of, uh, superimposes and overrides the, this, uh, this distinction between literal and spiritual. So it's either, it's either a law and therefore not necessary, or it's, a, it's something that's gospel and therefore truth permanent, right? Um, and so once again, his, uh, his, his literal meaning is superior. And so we have this even going towards, um, the Eucharist, right? So we have another quote here, um, from Luther it says this, the evangelists plainly record that Christ took bread and blessed it. The book of Acts and the apostle Paul call it bread. Therefore we are intended to understand it means real bread. And so also true wine and a true chalice since therefore it is not necessary to assume that divine power affected a transubstantiation. This must be regarded as a human invention because it is not supported by scripture or reason. So this is a heretical view, right? Um, namely, because Luther had the primacy of the literal sense in mind, he, when he reads the New Testament, when he reads the story of the Last Supper of Jesus saying, take, eat, this is my body, uh, take and eat this bread. This is my body, which is given for you. Um, he, he, he's 
he views it as symbolic, right? It's not because the the black and white letters did not say transubstantiation. Therefore, it's not scripture. Therefore, um, it's man-made and not real, right? And from a Catholic's understanding is we say, no, no, no. You have to understand that, first off, the early church celebrated the Eucharist. It's in Acts, like Luther even mentions. And throughout the early history of the celebration of the Eucharist, right, as the church prays, there, therefore it believes, right? So the church had this understanding of the early the apostles' teaching of the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And it was only later on that there was debate among this, right? Early heresies uh, amongst Christians, you know, saying, is it truly his bread? Is it symbolically his bread? Is it only his bread when you consume it? All these things that the church then had to gather together in an ecumenical council and say, this is you know, it seems good to the Holy Spirit, as St. Peter said in, in the first Council of Jerusalem, that, you know, this is truly do- the church's dogmatic teaching that it is no longer uh, has under the appearance of uh, bread and wine, but is a truly and actually the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And later to be called transubstantiation because the church, the its words were trying to catch up to its beliefs, right? And so... Um, so yeah, so we have this kind of renunciation of all sacraments, right? Especially because there, it's not in scripture, right? So the only sacraments that he really holds on to um, is is baptism, really, as the, as the prime sacrament. Um, he says it's the foundation of them all, which is, I mean, we believe that too. Um, but he says it doesn't affect anything. It, it just accompanies the act of faith, right? So you already have faith and it's just a symbol of the faith you've already received. Um, and so... Um, you know, for him, it's really just, it's just baptism, kind of the Eucharist, but like I said, it's, it's symbolic, right? So confirmation, matrimony, ordination, extreme unction, all those are not sacraments since, you know, they're not scriptural or and they, they don't contain a promise, right? So throws them all out, not bap, not, not sacraments. So we have a few results of all of Luther's kind of ideas, his conclusions before we look into a few texts here. So the first, right? is in regards to exegesis, right? Especially the Old Testament. This is what Hannah Weicker say. Either the priesthood must be treated dialectically as something merely of the Old Testament, right? Or the priesthood must somehow be exegetically muted or transformed. So because of this law gospel dichotomy, the, the priesthood cannot be seen as a typological foreshadowing of the priesthood of Christ and therefore the high priesthood of Christ and therefore the priesthood, uh, the formal priesthood, the sacramental priesthood, right? It has to be either exegetically muted or downplayed, so interpreted in such a way, or just say it's a part of the law and therefore no longer needed, right? Obviously, we see that effect. The second one, um, because sacramental priesthood is exegetically downplayed or muted in their words, um, priesthood can no longer function as a distinct or essential class like in society, right? So this is kind of a political effect. So Luther is stripping... Uh, the church and all priests, bishops of any kind of authority, right? Because if they don't truly have authority, then they can't claim it in the secular realm either. And then the last one um, is Luther's definition of sacrament, right? And so once again, because him hearing of the word and the promise is so central, promise is so central. And so it, it he seems to undermine keeping any sacraments, even in name, right? So primacy this is what Hannah Weicker say, um, he says, and to affirm, instead simply holding to the primacy and sufficiency of 
the Bible. The Bible is all you need because the Bible, we hear, um, it's we receive faith through hearing, right? Like we have in scripture as well. Um, and so this opens a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of um, doorways for other reformers to kind of pick it up and run with it, right? From you know, the Anabaptists who, who truly t- uh, take his logic to his logical conclusion of no sacraments, right? Everything's just symbolic. Everything is just um, a sign of the faith you've already received. Um, and so it's one of those things, it's important as a Catholic to understand, uh, you know, there is an element of faith that, uh, that, that God imparts to somebody in order for an adult in order to bring them into the fold and lead them to baptism, right? So it takes, you know, if you have a 25 year old, never been, never been baptized. And all of a sudden he, he, he encounters uh, an awesome friend or a Catholic, or he encounters truth through the scripture or the early church or whatever it might be. And if he, his desire for baptism, right. And his, this pursuit of it goes, enters RCIA. Um, we would never say that the Holy spirit wasn't the, the formal and primary cause that the Holy Spirit leading him, and in some way, this mustard seed of faith being implanted into his heart, and therefore he gets drawn to the sacrament of baptism. Of course we would say that, right? Why? Because we're not Pelagian. We don't say that we come to this thought, and therefore we make the first step, and then we receive baptism as like a gift from God for our good faith. No, it's the primacy of grace through faith, right? Um, Faith is key. Grace is pure gift, right? Um, But what we'll say is that, but when you are baptized— you, your soul changes, right? You become truly a son or daughter of God through your union with Christ in baptism, right? It, it's, it affects are efficacious, right? Um, apart from whatever state of the soul, right? Uh, when you are baptized, you receive the persons of the Trinity in your soul. Your soul changes. It's not merely an outward sign of your change of mindset, Right? Um, it, it truly changes your soul to conform you to the image of the sun. And so um, a, a, a key, one key passage that kind of lets Luther um, do what he does is, is actually Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, this is the famous passage of, um, you know, wives be submissive to your husbands um, as, as the church is to Christ and all these things. And so the interesting thing that Luther does here is that, you know, for us, we read that and we see church formally as in like the mystical body of Christ, right? All the members of his, of his body, right? That make up this mystical body of Christ. But for Luther, and I think his nominalism is, is, the, is the blame here too, because remember nominalism is it's only particular. There is no universals. Um, and so for Luther, he interprets church as just the individual Christian, Right. And so this leads him to a few conclusions. And so uh, we read this. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united to her bridegroom, so that as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul become one flesh. In this royal marriage, the soul receives Christ's full righteousness without any works on its part. And so Luther declares, as God on said, a Christian has all that he needs in faith and needs no works to justify him. And if he has no need of works, he has no need of the law. And if he has no need of the law, surely he is free from the law. And so we see that for, for Luther here, uh, he's, he's viewing, right, the, 
the bride as the individual soul who receives her bridegroom, right? It's faith that unites the soul with Christ as bride is united to her bridegroom. And so once again, this he, he's viewing everything through the lens of faith alone. And so there's no need of works, no need of the law. And if he has no need of the law, surely he is free from the law. And so this is really important for us now to define our terms. And we've kind of done this in the, in the show before in the past, uh, but it's, it's really, really important. So instead of like just like page flipping and going through all these different books, um, I want to talk about the three kind of key terms that it's just really important to know as a Catholic. Um, and and we're, we have, you know, basically just under five minutes here. So we're <laughs> not going to talk about them in, in, in a lot of detail. Um, a great book uh, is Scott Hahn's uh, Bible study or, uh, yeah, well, Bible study, but uh, biblical commentary on Romans. Um, he talks about each of these topics uh, in pretty thorough detail. Um, and he can point you to more directions. So uh, the name of the topics are faith, justification, and works. So we have this idea of, of what is faith, right? And so for, for Luther, faith is is purely intellectual. It's intellectual consent as to what you cannot see as we read in like Hebrews, right? Um, and so in and, and faith, the, the word in Greek is pistis, right? Um, it, 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 there is an intellectual element of it, obviously, right? But to leave it, as merely intellectual assent to something you cannot see is to downplay the word pistis in Greek and the word faith in English, right? Um, okay, so his sense of I have faith that my wife will take care of my kids while I'm at work, right? I intellectually consent to the fact that my wife loves my kids and will take care of them while I'm at work. Shout out to my wife if she's listening. Babe, you rock. Um, <laughs> but so that that is an element, right? But there's, it's also more, right? We have this idea of being faithful, right? As in loyal, right? I truly have faith that my wife will be faithful, right? She will be loyal to me until the day that one of us dies, right? Um, she is faithful. So there's a sense of loyalty when it comes to faith, right? There's an obedience of faith, right? That namely that we, we will, our will conforms to this as well. It's not just intellectual, it's our will. We have an obedience of faith because we believe, therefore we will be faithful, right? To our words. So we have this idea that it's, it's not merely intellectual. Uh, yes, I believe in Jesus and I'll say it out loud in front of a bunch of people that I believe in Jesus. I believe he raised from the, rose from the dead and all these things, right? For Luther, that's kind of it, right? You just say you believe in Jesus and if you want to get baptized, cool. Like it shows like to the world that you intellectually consent that Jesus is real, that he rose from the dead and he has forgiven your sins. But rather, it, there's, there's an element of the will involved as well because you have to be faithful then, right? Um, so faith isn't merely intellectual consent, right? You have to be faithful the obedience of faith. And St. Paul in Romans 1 even talks about the obedience of faith, right? Um, and so, and it's faith working itself out through love, right? He'll say that elsewhere. Um, and so faith working itself out through love um, because we are faithful to the word of God, right? It's not merely intellectual consent. But for Luther and for a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, it's merely an intellectual consent, Right. But for, for, for us and our understanding, if you read St. Paul closely, it can't just be uh, intellectual consent. Another really great book is uh, Michael Gorman and uh, his book, uh, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, a study of 
St. Paul in his section on Romans as well. He does a really good job talking about this. So Michael Gorman, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, another gem. Okay, and then we'll talk about works before we talk about justification. So works. And so for not all Protestants, but for Luther, works, right, is, is just the law, right? The entire Old Testament um, is, is based, is, is what, he, what he will call works or any good deeds, right? Anything that has human involvement is works, right? Anything, it's, it's the law, it's, it's human involvement, right? Um, and so we have this, you know, idea for Luther that works because it's this dichotomy between law and gospel that works are tied to the law and therefore are no longer needed because for Luther, the, the works were only given in order to get Israel to a place where Jesus will come and then they no longer need the law, right? And so this is pretty obvious, um, I, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but it's, it's important to, to, to talk about because the works are, from a Catholic perspective, and even for St. Paul, this is not just like Chase's idea of Catholicism. Read St. Paul. Um, it, does it sometimes mean good deeds? Yes, it does. But at other times, and most other times, when St. Paul is talking about works, he's talking about the ceremonial works of the Old Testament, which are true. We, they're, they're void. We don't need them anymore. Namely, circumcision, calendar law, kosher law, all these things. The ceremonial law is no longer needed. We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. Don't have to. Um, but the moral law, right? The Ten Commandments, for example, that shall not kill. Those are not dead and gone, right? And so for, for us as Catholics, we say that, you know, faith without works is dead. And it's not Catholic, that's, that's in scripture. But we say that with the understanding that we're not talking about circumcision or kosher meals or calendar law or sacrificing animals. Um, the, the works that St. Paul is talking about are, is in that moment, are deeds, right? It's faith working itself out through love. You can't just have faith. You have to be conformed to the image of the sun. Okay. Um, and so faith, not just intellectual works, it's ceremonial law, not literally any good deed you could do. Um, and so then we have justification. And so we could do a, a million podcasts on this topic. So I'm sure there's other ones out there, uh, but for justification. So for Luther, how one is justified um, how one is made just in the sight of God, it's actually impossible. Um, this is actually going back to his nominalism, right? Because for him, there's no analogy of being. There, there's an infinite gap between us and God. There is no analogy of being. And therefore, it, heaven is truly, truly impossible. Um, and therefore, you are a piece of dung covered in snow. And so for Luther, because God the Father is a judge, he creates a legal fiction, right? Namely that you are a piece of dung, right? And you are, because you're a piece of dung, you can never enter heaven. But through the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ, you will, you're covered in snow. And God, when you die, looks at you covered in snow. And even though you are not actually just or good, he declares you so through the merits of Jesus Christ, and therefore you are saved. And that is not the Catholic view. So we'll agree on a, a few points. One, God, there is an infinite gap between the human and divine nature. Totally, infinite gap. We're going over 30 minutes today, apparently. So that's okay. But 
there is an infinite gap between human and divine nature that there's no bridge that can cross it naturally, right? It is truly the cross of Jesus Christ that bridges this gap. Uh, but it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, as St. Paul says. And so while you are born a piece of dung, right, even though I think you're, you're, you're prettier than that, um, uh, from a Catholic perspective, from a, a authentically a Thomistic perspective, I should say too, is that through the grace of Jesus Christ, through the primacy of grace through faith, you, your soul, through the graces of Christ that you receive at baptism, your soul changes. St. Thomas says, God became man so that man through, through grace may become God. So you get deified, which it's, it's crazy when you think of it. You get Christified, if you will. You get conformed to the image of Christ. So when you die, you're not a pile of dung covered in snow, and God has to le- have a, create a legal fiction in order for you to enter heaven. When you die, he sees you, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And it's still through the merits of Christ's cross that you enter heaven. But... It is truly you. It's not a legal fiction. It's not God saying, hey, you're still a piece of crap, but come on in anyway. No, it's saying it's God seeing that you have been conformed to the image of his son. And he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Right. Hence the need for purgatory, because a lot of us, when we die, we're not there yet. Purgatory is such a gift, y'all. It's such a gift. But there are those rare few, we'll call saints, who when they die, they've lived extraordinary lives. They've carried their crosses and they've been conformed to the image of God. We call them saints. They've been conformed to the image of his son. They don't need purgatory. Their purgatory was lived on this earth as it's meant to be. So, you were saved at baptism, but you continue to be saved through this life every time, every moment of the day, every time you recognize God's presence. And then when you die, you are once again saved. A lot more can and has been said on justification, but it's really important for us to know we are not a pile of dung covered in snow. We are conformed to the image of his son. It's faith working itself out through love. So, once again, as always, thank you for joining us on Catholics with Bibles, and we will see you next time, y'all. God bless. Man, we don't have a lot of episodes where we go over 30 minutes. I try to keep it shorter than that, but I needed to talk about those three key terms because it'll at least empower you to read St. Paul, hopefully, well, have these conversations with non-Catholics well. Once again, two great books that that I would definitely recommend, apart from politicizing the Bible, which we're going through, is Scott Hahn's commentary on the book of Romans and also um, Apostle of the Crucified Lord. Um, It's a great book as well on uh, the thoughts of St. Paul and all these key terms. So thank you so much for joining me on Catholics with Bibles. We'll see you next week, y'all. God bless.